Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, I'm Mayhem. Hello, I'm Chaos. And our happiness is egg-shaped. Happiness is egg-shaped and loves a circle with no end. Oh, what's that about this last night? And he said, happiness is egg-shaped. Happiness is egg-shaped and loves a circle with no end. Hello and welcome to the Happiness Is podcast with me, your host, Bruce Aitchison from Happiness Is Egg Shaped. And yes, I'm always excited, but today, never more so. And I'm also a little bit nervous because the man who is on today is described on his website as engaging, charming and mesmerizing. Now that is pretty spectacular. And I am in absolute awe of a man who is my hero when we started talking about the podcast with Big Handsome Sean from Fill Your Boots, the original list, and this man is top of the original list, and I am absolutely blown away that he has agreed to give me some of his very precious time. Because you know on social media when you see that thing, Beyonce only has 24 hours in a day as well. Well, I think this guy has about 20 hours in the day. I have no idea how he has got time to sleep. He is the one and the only Mr. Ben Ryan. Bruce, you've given me way too good an introduction there. It's just downhill from here. No, in the slightest. Uh, your website is fantastic. It is really, really cool. And your podcast is top drawer. And Mar- how good is Margot Wells? Oh, she's brilliant, isn't she? Um, I actually uh, interviewed another Scottish runner, Liz McColgan, uh, yeah. last week, who was fantastic as well. Um, Margot's brilliant. You'd want her in your support staff if uh, if I was running a team again. And it's brilliant. Yeah, I'm really enjoying the, the Ben Ryan podcast. Thanks for giving it a shout. It's, um, you know, it's I love talking about high performance and culture and kind of going deep into the, into into that with people that perhaps aren't the 
the the people front of house that you might think about around performance but are actually those ones that have got those amazing stories and people like Margot yeah she's she's awesome she does not suffer fools does she <laughs> no she does no she doesn't and I know you know I know a fair few athletes that have um have worked under her and no she tells them what it is but I think it's refreshing because at the same time she, you know she's got that um that co- coach is also always you know if you can get that that formula where you can be straight and they know exactly where, where the line is but you can put an arm around them at the same time and they feel loved um then I, th- I think that's pretty unique and it's what those those top end coaches particularly on the one-to-one stuff that you'd have in in something like athletics um it, it's so valuable uh, I think she's my favourite, but the, the next, the silver medalist, Tony Minicello, and I love how he talks about telling stories. Mm-hmm. Are you a storyteller? Yeah, I am a storyteller, and I think it's incredibly important to to have that in your in your locker and, and use it, because for me, certainly, I remember a lot of the things that, that I need to remember in, in coaching and in, in teaching through stories, and I think... You know, particularly in Fiji, the, the boys enjoyed wrapping stuff around stories, but I think people do in, in general. So, you know, in, in Fiji, it might be, you know, having a hot chocolate in the evening um, around around the table and just having Talanoa, having a chat with everybody and storytelling. And, and it's part of the culture in Fiji. Uh, um, but I think it's a part of the culture everywhere if, if you look hard enough. And that culture just blows my mind. I've got my Fiji shirt over my shoulder here that Big Bill and Leone have signed for me. Um, and, I, and I know Bill. Now, Bill got player of the year for Edinburgh and I was hosting the event and I got him up. He grabbed it and ran away. He did, <laughs> he did not want to make a speech. He did not want to be interviewed. He was in front of his teammates and the coaches and the staff of Edinburgh Rugby. There was no one else there. There was no other outsiders there other than me. And he just wanted to sit down. How do you bring the best out of a guy? And you absolutely did. How do you bring the best out of a guy like Bill? Bill, Bill's someone that I, now that I know that you've met him a, a few a few times. You know, you can understand, I guess, that Bill's Bill is a, a, such an um, uh, you know you, you feel so much warmth towards him, and you want him to do well. And he, you know, he's got great values. He's got a strong family around him, not just his wife and kids in Edinburgh, but you know, his, his, his family back in Fiji. Um, and, and really like his, his path with me started when his dad, who's, who's, you know, he's a big man as well. Um, much wider than Bill, you know, he's, he, he, I think he was doing close security in Iraq when I first met him and he has had some time out and he was watching Hong Kong sevens. Um, and I hadn't picked Bill that year. He hadn't quite managed to get himself up to the levels where he was consistent because his his fitness levels were poor at the start and he was breaking down in training. Um, his weak point was his calves. His calves would just give up on him, which is no surprise, I guess, if they were having to like handle what was above above the knee, you know, he, he was a big man. And um, and his dad just basically said to me, you know, what does Bill need to do to to get better? And we had, a, a, again, another Talanoa and he took it all on board and, um, and one thing led to another and, and Bill got himself in the team. And I think with all the Fijians, and I... And, I think Fiji is um is a great blueprint, perhaps, but I think it's it's it would be the same. It'd resonate, and I think perhaps you might feel the same as a teacher that if you create an environment where people feel valued and they feel um, safe to be able to be the, be their best version and and say what they want to, um, and not feel like they're 
you know, there's a hierarchy and they and they feel constrained or suffocated, then you're going to allow people like Bill just to go out and do his thing. And if he's not feeling great, then he, he feels safe enough to be able to tell tell you and you can pull it back or push him um, so that, you know, you start to then understand the player a lot better. And it means that when you do need to push him, you know which buttons to push and he knows he knows how to how to react. So um, he was a. Um, he was he was somebody that when we named the Olympic team, he was the one that they were like, why have you put him in? He, he's not one of those stardust players that, you know, the rest of the team is. Um, but he just, his offloading is sublime, but it's also very pragmatic. It kind of, it, it always goes to where it's supposed to. Um, his error rate's very low. Um, and he's, a, he's just a very, very good footballer. And, you know, I'm so pleased he's done so well in Edinburgh. You know, remember chatting to him and wanting to get a contract overseas and Edinburgh was the was the one that kind of put their hand up and it wasn't on a huge amount of money back then but it was an opportunity and and then I think you know I, I, th I think I could say this for every Fijian that's come into Edinburgh you know really grateful for the way that Edinburgh look after their Pacific Island players you know they do they, that's what every club should ring them up and say you know what what are you doing because they look after them and they bring them into kind of their village and make them feel loved and look after them. And it, and it often looks like a bit of an odd fit that, you know, you go into a cold place. Um, <laughs> that, that's a, a lot, you know, certainly from a, from a, from an environmental uh, standpoint is very different to Fiji, but Fijians, Fijians prosper in Scotland if they're looked after well. And I think some of that is, is that village kind of that village feel that I think you still have in Scotland. And, and I think, um, yeah, so, so Bill's had, I'm sure he's said it in the past that he's had lots of offers to go over lots of places and he stayed in Edinburgh because he feels valued and safe. It, there's a great Fijian community here with the barracks just across the street, actually, mm. from where I am. And this shirt that's over my shoulder, that was the, the barracks hosted a, a, a celebratory dinner for Bill and Leone. And it was phenomenal. It was a Friday night and I was invited to go because I'd helped my, my Fijian friend, Rupeni Rajia, who uh, I know is, a, is a, big, a big fan of yours as well. And he invited me to go because we'd done a fundraiser after the cyclone to buy tables and chairs for a school that had been wiped out. And, and it was a beautiful thing to be invited. And it blew my socks off, having known Fijian players for a long time. Nicky Gonova had come up from Newcastle just for the night to, to see them. The Glasgow Fijians had come through and were there. And it was the, you know, the Hessian mats were down. The food was going. The, the grog was on the go. It was just a spectacular thing. But the, the sense of community was what I saw and I loved. From the environment you were from and having been a teacher where you organized parents nights and you involved the family in education but then you you move into professional sport how valuable was that community and that family and you engaging with them to get the results that that you achieved that's a great question because i think it gets lost a little bit when you move or you feel or, or sometimes you know you feel like you've if you're coaching your under 14 football team um, in a comprehensive in Southall um, that suddenly when you're, you know, you're, you're coaching professional rugby players that you you lose some of those values and some of those tools that you, you had with those 13 year old kids. But in effect, you know, it's, it's just, um, it's changing things a little bit to your environment, but staying true to some of the values that, that you think 
helps you as a coach and helps people perform better on on the field so um community i think i think it's 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 a long it's a probably a, got a lots of different strands this answer because if you take my you know i stopped having I, I was playing in the in in the premiership and we got relegated to west hartlepool and i got injured in summer tour with the penguins came back and had to supply teach around all different parts of london and then i stuck at a, a place in southall for like two terms and um and so i was teaching pe and football uh, and athletics and cricket and everything really but but um those those kids that that perhaps had some you know they had a a lot a lot of them came from some some tough parts of london and didn't have a huge amount and weren't particularly academic if you suddenly said something positive about them on a, on a football field you know you you've got you've got them you know that they 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 really they would want more of that you know that because feeling valued and feeling like you've got a purpose and a belief in life is massively important and i think you know that i've i've mentored professional footballers that have come from those backgrounds and are now on a very in a very different lifestyle but if they can hold on to those feelings about you know that that purpose and belief then i think it drives their performances still and and i think as coaches it's the same don't forget where you know where you started um because i did definitely bruce when i went to england you know and you, and you think well okay this is what's it's supposed to be the best and and you start to lose some of those softer skills that got you to where you wanted to get to in the first place and actually make you a pretty average version of yourself until you kind of have that awareness um that you need to change things up and fiji were were you were you just ready for Fiji at that moment in life if you'd been offered that job 10 years earlier do you think you could have done the job that you did no I, I don't um I, I think it was it was um it was a happy happenstance really of a whole number of factors all coming together at the same time to allow me to to think that right this is what I've got to do and where where I've got to go I I, I you know it was from not doing well in that last year with England and not doing well, I guess, more off the field. You know, we had, I think we'd only come fifth or sixth in the World Series, which wasn't a disaster. And we'd won the New Zealand leg and beat New Zealand in New Zealand. And we'd won the European title and we'd got to the World Cup final for the first time in 20 years. But I was having so many infights with the people above me um, or a couple of people above me that, that made it really, um, I, I just didn't enjoy what I was doing. I fell totally out of love with professional rugby and uh, as a wider thought, professional sport. Um, and I know I didn't want to feel confined into wanting to ha have to, to to do what they were telling me to do, you know, to to select in a certain way, train in a certain way, conform in a certain way. Um, it wasn't wasn't what I wanted to do and it wasn't getting the best out of me. So I talk about it sometimes that when when you're a teacher, you know, doing your PGCE or you're a coach with your first your first um, team that you're looking after, you're in total control. You've got very little, you've got no support staff, right? You know, as an under-14 football coach teaching us, I was doing a Christmas tree formation, five at the back, you know, um, <laughs> and uh, and I didn't have anyone around me. And, you know, and I and I didn't, I'd, I'd only played football at school level, really. And uh, um and you don't have anything, but you're in control, and you can mould that. And, it, and and for me, that in my head, I have I have me as a as a, a rusty old bicycle that's you know got a couple of gears, doesn't go very fast. But if there's something in your way, you either hit it and then try to next time you remember that and, and navigate your way around it, or you do navigate your way around it. 
And as you kind of get more whistles and bells, so for me, that was going from supply to a comprehensive to a boarding school to semi-pro rugby to pro rugby to international rugby, that 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 vehicle changes, you know, from a bike to a nicer bike to a little run around to an, a nice little um open top to a big juggernaut that was that was England <laughs> and that big juggernaut is shiny and it's big and it's very fast and it, and and it's hard though to to change direction you don't feel like you're at the front driving it you don't you can't see where it's going and you don't feel that you're in control of it you're at the back somewhere and that for me just meant that I wasn't going to be at my best I didn't feel I had any real purpose I didn't feel belief in the people above me um i didn't feel I had any autonomy i could i could you know i could act as i wanted to um i didn't feel safe uh, i didn't feel what I, I could have a clear conversation with my bosses and that i wasn't going to be um i wasn't going to be marked down for it and so all of those negative stuff when i ended up going to fiji you know it reminded me of how i needed to behave as a coach as a leader as a manager to make sure that 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 wasn't me doing that to anybody else and I'm a great believer in us being products of our environment and our upbringing. So I remember that when I was given my first head coach role, I think the players were sick of me because I had all this learning and I wanted to get to them as quickly as possible. And I wanted results straight away and winning was important. And I now look back and I think, God, how did, how did I how did I manage that? How did I cope on such high intensity for such a long time? And I'm only talking amateur level here. I'm not at all talking the levels you were at, but I was very ambitious and I wanted to be the Scotland coach and I wanted to be the British Lions coach. At what point did you decide I want to be a professional coach or were you always the guy who was going to go into coaching? Um, I think, you know, I think we all have different, aspirations and as careers as we grow up so you know as a, as a kid obviously it was as, as a performer you know either as an, an athlete I ran a lot as a and and rugby and as those things kind of like faded away and I went into teaching and then you start to go into coaching then you start to think okay what what how can you how can you move up and I think quite early on I realized that I was going to be a bit better coach than I was as a player um and, and probably as a teacher and the opportunity, my dad always used to say, you know, and I'm a big believer in it. And I, I mentioned it to a coach this weekend who had a big, a, a big game. I was like, I don't believe in giving, saying to people, good luck. You know, I, I think luck is when, you know, opportunity meets a prepared mind. And if you're prepared, then when those opportunities come and they will come, you'll be in a good position to grab them. And I think that's really what happened with me. You know, at, at the start, I just said yes to any coaching opportunity when I was teaching. So that was, you know, the county team, that was the Southwest team, that was the Oxford Uni under 21s team, that was the Newbury backs, um, as well as a school team. And you just immerse yourself in it all. And then when, you know, you, you do a decent job and an opportunity comes somewhere else, then the next the next chance you take and you take and you take. So I didn't think, and I don't think I have a ceiling as a coach. Um, I don't think there's any job that would be too big for me. But um, I guess that's all about because you have confidence in your competence and you know if you don't I'm, I'm not an overly arrogant person but I feel very confident in what I can do and you know I guess Bruce if, if you don't then you haven't got much chance in anybody else <laughs> thinking you're any good 
And did you have that when you left the England job? I I wasn't sure what where I was going to go then. I kind of um, I left, and it was a phone call. Actually, I don't think I've told anyone this before. It was um, I, I was basically you know you, you, often when you see the big the international jobs and people leave, it's like well, they've decided to step down, you know, and that's the normal phrase that you get. And behind the scenes, there's been some sort of deal done and you've signed some sort of contract to keep quiet about a few things, some non-disclosures, and you leave. And I'd effectively kind of been given the, the decision um, by my boss, right, like you either step down or we, we make you reapply for your job. And, you know, I just finished. My last game was the World Cup final. Um, we'd beaten in the previous tournament in London. We'd been Fiji by 40 points, biggest win ever. And I think one of their largest losses ever. Um, and I, and I, you know, I, I so I, I wasn't going to step, I wasn't going to reapply for my job. So that was that. And the timing was going to be done the following week or something that we would have this press release and they would do all the things, but somebody in the newspaper had got hold of it and they give me a call on Sunday and they say here that this is happening. So that meant, you know, you call the RFU papers have got hold of it. We need to accelerate all of this. And then they, they, they said, you know, all of that came out on the Sunday, um, and it was a it was a it was a hot day, and I do remember thinking, uh, what I didn't know what to do, really didn't know what to do, and then that's when the UK Sport and EIS approached me about a job, and it was more strategy, back of house stuff, um, and 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 part of me was like, well, you know, there's a, there's a need here financially to to have a job, and I need to do something. But at the same time, I didn't feel like I'd, I would have felt like I'd always left something on the table if I had walked away because as a coach, I know it's not all about winning trophies, but at the same time, it adds to your credibility on what you, what you're, and your philosophy if you're successful within that as well. And I wanted to win World Series and I wanted to um, go to the Olympics with a team because I knew that we'd, as a sport had got into the Olympics. And so that's when, you know, I got a, a message on, on Twitter from a mate that said, Fiji are looking for a new head coach. And that began the journey. And I love that, that financially needed a job, but then you went to Fiji, you didn't get paid. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's when, that's when that, that conversation that we had earlier about, you know, you, the RFU and, and, you know, you come to some sort of financial arrangement um, if you're going to step down. And, and I used that money for the next, I don't know, six months really to, to keep me going. Um, so, you know, you can look back at it and go, that was a effectively, that, that was a failure um, as far as, you know, effectively getting sacked Bruce really, but it was the best thing that's ever happened to me. Um, you know, I, and although I'm not going to, you know, thank those people for what they did. Um, I'm still, I'm still grateful that it resulted in me, you know, a few weeks later stepping on a plane and ending up in Fiji. There are certain jobs in sport, being the Brazilian football coach, maybe being the Canadian ice hockey coach, to be the Fiji Sevens coach must is a is a bit ridiculous for an Englishman for or for mm -hmm. almost anybody, maybe other than maybe a Kiwi to to go across the water and do it. Mm -hmm. So you got on a plane. How much did you know? You spend a lot of time in the Sevens circus together with each other in hotels and you have hit outs against each other. So I've, I've no doubt you were learning and you'd be analysing them. But what did you know about Fiji? 
Yeah, I, I did know a few things, but I would say um, certainly at kind of that that very fun foundation level, nothing more. So I hadn't ever lived in Fiji, obviously, and I've never visited Fiji. But I'd played against Fiji um, and I'd coached against Fiji. And also we had a couple of Fijians that at the time were were playing for the England team or had been playing there. Uh, Josh Drananui that, that was in the Navy and was playing uh, at Exeter. And then um, Iso Ndamu is probably still one of the, the best players I've ever coached. That's now the British Army Sevens coach. And um, and so I chatted to, to Damu about a few things and he gave me a few a few um, things to, to to bear in mind. Um, and then and and then over the circuit, I had obviously seen how they prepared. Um, I'd spoken to some of their staff and Kathy Wong, who was one of their physios. I remember chatting to her after we'd just won Dubai with England and we'd beaten Fiji in the quarterfinal, I think. And um, they had people like Semi Randrandra playing in that tournament. They're pretty useful, um, but we somehow managed to, to 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 cling on a bit and beat them. And I think a lot of that was down to us being prepared as from an analytical point of view, and Fiji being the total opposite. You know that they didn't watch opposition videos, so something simple like you know a change up in the kickoff or a four man line out um, would would suddenly just get them off off the you know off their game and you can win games on the back of that you know and and for England I had a winning record against Fiji which just shouldn't happen uh, and so you could see that there were things that anybody could really come in and, and make a difference on um and and we yeah would have hit outs with them and I'd watch them in the in in the in the mill rooms because we'd share hotels and stuff and I'd see them after tournaments and how some sometimes they, they were they were and all of those things then would give me some ideas on okay what are the first things i need to do when i when i come into a, a new place to make a change when when i when i read this and and this is magnificent it is absolutely brilliant and george gregan on the front says one of the all-time great sporting tales good things happen to good people you you went and they probably needed some structure some of what you had but you also needed a lot of what they had. And I, I love the story. I, I think it was when you were talking, was it to Tony Minicello, and you were talking about trying to get them to do a speed test. Yeah. And you couldn't believe the times they were recording. Uh, I mean, talk, talk us through that story, because I absolutely love it. Yeah, the, 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 that was early on. And that was when I was applying Pareto's principle, really, which I'm a big believer in. And uh, without getting into the actual percentages but effectively it's a bit like the 80 20 rule you know that 80 percent of your success based around 20 percent of the things you do and i think all of us have things that we're that we know bring our biggest bang for our buck really and our the tools that we've got and i needed to get something to 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 put into the team that would get us some quick results and we didn't have any money but getting them fit would also create the ripple effect of of training at a higher intensity on them understanding how to recover better after harder sessions um, and connect all the reasons why they were doing that. And so I did, you know, we were doing the, the, the famous Sanjin running and things like that, but I wanted to do a speed test. And, and in, in England, we'd do it normally at the Lensbury on the artificial turf that they have out on the other side of the road um, in Teddington. And they'd have a wing gauge and they'd have high speed, high definition cameras at two, five, 10, 20, 30, 40 meters. Um, 
they would they would have the electronic timing gates and then they'd sprint down it would get videoed and it would get sent back to their bluetooth to their ipads with their times and their a recording of their of them and then our speed coach would tell them how to improve you know and i thought well you know you measure that so you manage it and with england you needed to squeeze everything you possibly could out of those players to get them at their best consistently and so I thought, well, look, let's just get a baseline for these boys. Let's find out what their 40 metres are like so I can start to see who needs a bit more work in that, that department. And we didn't have anything. I had my phone for my timings and a whistle and, and I had a, a plastic bag and a coconut tree to roughly measure out about 40 metres. Um, and so we got them doing this. And, yeah, they, they, they literally were, they were so slow. Their times were so slow that I... I, I I, did, I thought I'd done something wrong to upset them because they looked like they were doing it, you know, to, you know, to get back at me in some way. And then I spoke to William, our physio, and and I said, you know, what what should I do? And he said, just get someone to chase them. So I did, and I put someone a couple of meters behind, and they ran because they didn't want to get caught. And then we put someone in front with a rugby ball, and they chased them because they wanted to catch the guy with the rugby ball. Now, and I thought they would understand this is what I'm doing. I'm measuring a speed so that I could then implement this into an overall training plan. Right. They just thought the ginger bloke's getting me to run to the plastic bag. It's not fun. I'm not getting fit. I'm not scoring any tries. What was the point? And it was a really valuable lesson to me, particularly with some of the stuff I had come to, to, to use in England where, you know, I was the first coach to ever use GPS in international rugby and, we had lots of different techie stuff that I, I used with England to squeeze every ounce of, of, of their skill out of them because we didn't necessarily have the opportunity to have all the best players in England. We had players we really had to find from all different areas that ended up being world-class, but I needed to pile that onto them to support. And I thought they'd understand it. And my lesson was that I needed to make sure I explained fully why I was doing what I was doing. So for anything we were going to do in the future, whether it was taking them off carbohydrates for, you know, a few months before the Olympics and, and be interesting getting Bill's take on that. If you ever do speak to him, um, he was one of those that found it pretty hard to come off the carbohydrates for a few months. Um, or it was getting them up in the middle of the night to get over jet lag or to stay up to get over jet lag or to run up sand dunes at six in the morning. Um, I had to say, like, this is why we're doing it. And then they would agree, have to agree. They would say, okay, we can see the, I can see the benefit. They connect it then, you know, what, what, what I'm asking from them. And that they, they connect and then they own it. And that once they own it, that means that when, you know, they've had five hard sessions and then they've got, they've been asked to run up the sand dunes at five in the morning for two hours, they understand why they own it and it becomes really robust and resilient. So it's hard to, to break, you know, that they, they can, they can, they can do it. And it was a big lesson for me, really, you know, that that was something I would have had with kids in Southall teaching football because, you know, you had to it had to make sure that they would turn up for the games and they would do, you know, turn up for class and and all those sort of things. Um, and actually, yeah, uh, there's another story from 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 those days that I can share with you. Actually, I was I was head of cricket at um, only because I was the only staff member that knew anything about cricket. I was, I'm a rub, I'm a rubbish cricketer, um, but I was head of cricket. And we just started trying to get them to play matches so that we could actually give them that kind of team spirit, go to another school and play. And so I was doing all the stuff around coaching just so that we could effectively play. They would understand the, the, the basic rules of the game. They'd, they'd come in, 
you know, so I was there as one of the uh, teachers that was one of the umpires and, and our first lad comes in and he says, um, uh, middle please umpire. And I thought this is brilliant. And he, and he did the, took the middle, um, and he, he looked around, um, he looked at where everyone was standing and he took his guard and I thought, this is fantastic. This is fantastic. And, and the first ball, first ball goes and, and he whacks it. And I think, oh, great, this is good. And he gets his bat and he slings it. He just throws it back like you would in rounders. Because I hadn't actually told him, oh, you've got to hang on to your bat. You've got to run with it to go down the next bit. Um, and it just almost just knocks off the poor wicketkeeper's head. And, uh, and, and, and then when we're fielding, they decided that they didn't trust me enough to give me all their valuables. So the opposition would hit the ball and it would go past them. So they'd run and chase the ball, but then their car key, well, their keys or their change would come out. They'd stop. They'd go and get all their change. They'd put it back in their pockets, and then they'd run and get the ball. So some some of that thread about connecting things and remembering, you know, you don't know what you don't know, um, served me in good stead, really, as a supply teacher going going ended up in Fiji. And in in Fiji, the I mean, reading the book you try and give a sense of what you did after training and how you tried to relax, but you've already made the comment about being ginger. I mean, yeah. you must have stuck out like a sore thumb in Fiji. Did that mean everybody wanted to say who should be picked and what are you doing and who's going to this tournament? Or have you seen my son? How, how, how you must've felt like a rock star. Well, at the very start. So I came in, I think about uh, less than a week, maybe five days before the very first tournament in the Gold Coast. So the team was selected by, I think, eight or nine selectors. I didn't, I didn't have any say in the selection. Um, and the old coach was still kind of sidelined with me um, for the first warm up stuff we'd had that week. And, um, and yeah, so when I came back, I said, look, one thing is I'm picking the team and, and only me. We haven't got any selectors and we haven't got anyone else telling me anything. And although, in the first few months, people tried to. Um, I'd set my I'd set my stall out and said that these are my guardrails. Like, if you want me as coach, then you know I live and die by my selections. So let me select. Um, and so yeah, that was that was how it was really. And then I think also because I had brought in Pareto's law early, I had made a bit of a gamble. Not for me a gamble, but it went against what I was being asked by the Fiji Rugby Union. We'd had an injury from that first team that got picked just before we went and we had a list of reserves and I'll say Clint the captain was one of them well my you know to be captain and I got told not to pick him because he's a troublemaker um, I didn't really know what that meant and uh, it, it actually meant that he stood up for his players when they weren't getting paid and things like that and I, I made him captain I brought him in made him captain and it was the best decision I ever made because that plus applying Pareto's principle changing up the intensity, putting a little more emphasis on on, on our um, on our set piece. And in in Dubai, our defensive strategy was keep seven players on the field. That was it. <laughs> that literally was it. We just said, like, just keep, don't, we don't want any cards. We get down to six, we're in trouble. So we just, you know, keep do that. We, we won Dubai. Um, you know, we famously beat feet, uh, New Zealand 44-0, still their heaviest defeat in international rugby at any level. Um and did the same pretty much to South Africa in the final. And then that gave me time as a coach then to for them to think, okay, you know, what he's doing is starting to work. And then it also leaked to the press through a board member that I wasn't getting paid. And I didn't want that information to come out because I was trying to get money coming in from sponsors. But then that also made them 
like me, I guess, a bit, a bit more and think, okay, there's, he's here for other reasons. And so those things, because yeah, there, there weren't many other gin or any gingers on the island. Um, <laughs> I did stick out and you couldn't really go anywhere. You know, if you, if you, if you do go get, ever get a chance to go to Fiji, you know, they're, they're so crazy about their sevens. You know, I remember when Rasta, Rasta Venge, the, the, the referee came and he was literally mobbed as a superstar, you know, and couldn't go anywhere. And it's just, it's just impossible to think that that could ever happen in any other country in the world. And, um, so they knew me before I came because of, you know, watching me and with the England sevens team. And, uh, yeah, it was, um, it was some, it took some adjustment. That's for sure. At, at what point can you remember a moment probably early that you pinched yourself and thought, I'm in Fiji coaching the Fiji seven squad or, or were you always just quite, um, this is my job. This is what I'm here for. This is the right place to be. Um, I don't, it wasn't a moment coaching in the early few weeks because I was kind of just immersed in really staying in the present and just trying to, you know, get, get everyone to the, to the right level quickly to, to, to be able to do their thing. But I was at the national stadium and I, I can't remember if we were having a fitness test or where I'd watched a, a game or something and it was kind of getting to, to dusk. And I was, I was driving out to drive back kind of 45 minutes to Pacific Harbor in Sarua where, where I was staying. Um, and you just, you just, I just turned right out of the stadium and you've got the seawall on your left and you, you're just, just following the road with the seawall down there. And you're just watching people playing touch or rugby or messing around with this amazing sunset and people were shouting because your window's down because it's too hot and they can see you and you're just thinking this a lot can happen in the next three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend but what won't change needing health insurance united healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is, this is beautiful. And, uh, and how lucky I was to, to be in this moment in time to be where I was. So that was the first time I guess that I thought, yeah, this is, you know, I really hope this works out because it's a, it's a very magnetic place, Fiji. Did you share with the players how grateful you felt? I think at the start, I didn't, um, I didn't say that much. You know, I, I listened, um, I traveled around to a lot of the um, smaller islands and places on the main island of Vitalevu um, as much as I could to just to understand a bit more about the culture, you know, because obviously I hadn't grown up in Fiji or, um, you know, or been to Fijian school or eaten Fijian food or listened to Fijian music. So I needed to understand all of that. And so I said, I didn't say that much. And then when we did start to put our guardrails in place, it got we got collective ownership of whatever they were. So if it was the timings or the diet or the fitness levels, 
um, they all agreed to them. And so I, I think I would have been open at the very beginning. Um, and I and I had a, all Fijian management for the first um, two years. And so it was, you know, I allowed them their voice as well. So they knew I was in charge, but I, wa I certainly wasn't shouting a lot at the, at the, at the start. And, I, and I'm sure I would have said, um, you know, what an amazing opportunity it was. And I was also trying to, it's a strange one, Bruce, because um, they, a lot of the boys left school early. And so they didn't have that much confidence in their, in their intelligence, even though you're watching them play and they're the brightest footballers on the planet, you know, that they, they see so many things, so many moves ahead. Um, and they're obviously bright. They just, you know, they, the, the way it was that they left school early to work. And, and so if, you know, that, that if somebody came in from a supposedly more academic background, you know, like, like that, they, that they almost felt they had to be subservient and I needed for them to remind themselves and, and show them that, you know, they're, they're as bright as anybody. And so that was kind of my, my lead at the start, just to give them opportunity to shine really. Um, and so, and we never had an analyst for our, our time in Fiji because I allowed the boys to analyze and, and they came, they came out with stuff that was so clever um that you know that was way better than any analyst would have come up with you know when you get 12 of the squad around a, a laptop and once they had you know stopped laughing at each other when someone <laughs> dropped a ball or <laughs> and they actually took it seriously they would cut they would come up with some amazing stuff um and so it was a gradual thing but i had to be consistent that i might you know i've said this a million times but i honestly believe it and it's how i want to be coached i want that coach to feel like his end job is to be in the stand and watch and let us do our, do it on our own. You know, I'd, I'd love to be involved in sports where there's no coach, you know, and it's all the players. Um, and so if that's your end goal as a, as a coach, then you have to, you have to be true to that in your process. You have to allow players the space to do their thing within your guardrails that we've all agreed. And, and from day one, um, I think that's what we did. And and that's probably one of the big reasons why we accelerated quite quickly in those first few months. You, I mean, you are very assured. You can, you can hear the confidence in, in every story that you tell. When were the moments where that wavered? There, there were, there were a couple of um, drop-offs early on in the, in the year. So I think, you know, say for example, you know, after that, Dubai game um the following week we lost in the quarterfinals um and fell apart a little bit and then um so we started to show some inconsistency but it it was all to be expected so I wasn't necessarily getting too worried about that because you could see just from a purely co coach's point of view we hadn't we hadn't put enough foundations into them but then at the end of the first year where um I had stayed after the London London and, and um, Glasgow legs. I stayed in the UK for a couple of weeks um, with promises that the contracts would all get awarded to the boys. They they didn't award them to the players. And so we went to that first tournament um, in the Gold Coast with nobody contracted. And, and we swept through that tournament. We smashed it. I'd also um, prolapsed a disc in my back in, in, in Fiji when I landed. So I was, I was you know, high on tramadol for most of those... <laughs> two or three months, you know, that's, I literally was doing nothing. Um, and it shows you the power of the players, really, because I think we took a 14-0 lead in the final. We beat England in the quarters or the semis by almost 50 points, and, and they were really good. 
But at the end of that tournament, because they weren't contracted, everybody else saw they were really good and we lost half that team immediately um, to overseas contracts. And so we had to rebuild again. And then there was another issue with money and I stopped getting paid again. And that's when Australia um, got in touch and they said, uh, they, they, you know, they said, why don't you come over here and coach us? And, um, and, and a conversation between me and one person at the Australian Rugby Union um, the following day, the, the, you know, the head of the Fijian Rugby Union, the prime minister had found out about that conversation. Um, and that was then, yeah, I was, that was a concerning moment for me really um, on a number of levels. Um, and you, you did start to doubt whether things were going to work out. But, um, we stuck with it and, um, and plowed through really. And then, and, and actually won the world title that year, um, having kind of having a couple of dodgy tournaments, two semifinals, I think it was after we lost all our players and regrouped and then kind of got back up to speed again. No, no man is an island. So far, you have kind of shouldered a lot for yourself. You've also shouldered for others. Who's, who supports Ben Ryan in moments of celebration, of sorrow, of doubt? Who, who's your support network? Right then, if I'm if I'm honest, it was the guys I guess I was spending the most time with, which was uh, Rapati Carvesi, my manager, um, team manager, Osea Klinsel, um, the uh, the captain, and then it would have been Nava, who, who came on board then as a as the fitness uh, strength and conditioner the following year, and William R. Physio. So um, you know, I was I was married back then, um, and Natalie was living you know in Fiji as well. Um, but I kind of tried to keep separate as much as possible as you can in Fiji, you know, work and home. And so I never really shared too many of those problems. I'd just keep them to Rapati and Osea and another and William. And, and so they were my kind of rocks at the, at the beginning. Um, I leaned on them for cultural stuff at the start. Um, but also just as sounding boards, um, and as a kind of, a, a temperature, a gauge of of how the team were and what was happening and what the uh, the wider uh, Fijian community felt about what was was going on. So yeah, I, I I've said it you know, on record lots of times. I wouldn't have survived the first six months without Rapati and Osea if I hadn't had those two. We, this, we wouldn't be sitting here chatting. So you go through all this. Was Rio always the finish line or? did you have to take care of the process and you would get to Rio at some point? Uh, no, the gold medal for the Olympics was, was um, set as a goal early, you know, straight away. Um, and did you include the boys in that? Yeah. And yeah. We, we said, we said, this is where we, we, we want to get to. And, um, and we talked about it a lot, you know, and I know that, that that's a dangerous thing sometimes when you have outcome goals and you don't have a bit more process goals, but we wanted to, we wanted to be, you know, we wanted everyone to share in it and we, we wanted to be um, honest about what we wanted to achieve. And, and, you know, by the time we got to Rio, if we had lost and got a silver, we would have felt devastated. Now, you know, silver medal in Olympic games is an amazing, amazing for any athlete, but the fact that we had set everything that high and we had then backed it up with back to back world titles going into the Olympics meant that, um, you know, that it was, it was the gold or nothing. And, and I think that drove a lot of the intensity of of what we did going into those Olympic Games. 
and did the players talk about it when you were I love the sand dune pictures and, and videos there, there's a romance around that it wasn't speed gates it wasn't on a track or artificial mm. surface it wasn't decked out in head to toe all in the matching gear the there was an amazing build up to that I think everybody wanted Fiji to win that gold medal in the same way everybody wanted Usain Bolt to win the 100 meters and and do it in style or you know Mo Farah to win everybody was back in Fiji to do that what what was it like being in Rio and having the boys in what must have been a completely alien environment to them? Well, we, we flew in, we flew in um, to Rio late. So we had gone to Chile again. Um, uh, I had been to Chile a couple of times as a, as a player and a coach with England counties as, a, as an assistant coach and also with the Penguins. And I'd met, had some good connects there at some of the schools. So we, we went to Santiago and, and stayed in Santiago to get away from the craziness of Fiji and acclimatize uh, a little bit of altitude as well before we, we popped across to Rio. And so we only had three days, I think, and maybe one training session, maybe one and a half training sessions in Rio. Um, I think only one actually um, before we, we got onto the field. And we'd, you know, by that time, everybody's phones had been put to one side and laptops and everything else. And we were off grid effectively and just as a group meeting and going to breakfast lunch and dinner and training and everything together because you know the olympic games is the villages is, is has got many many distractions and um you see you see teams and athletes self-sabotage going in in those in those moments where the pressure gets too much and they'll almost subconsciously find reasons not to succeed and um and so we so we, i was very aware of that having spent some time in the village in london um that i knew that uh that that was something that we could control. And so, so we did. And and then when we went to the tournament, um, you know, we stayed in the present, we, we prepared well and the boys kind of took over really, you know, you, you, you had, you had the stuff that you, you put in around, around them, but effectively they were aligned and they all knew the big goal. So, you know, when I was telling Josh to us over that, you know, one of the best, sevens wingers and 15s wingers in the world that I wasn't picking him to start the final. He, he wasn't upset because he knew it was just, or it's just part of the plan. And, you know, he'd come on at half time. And I thought maybe if Great Britain had a bit of possession, they might try and tire him out. And, 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 and Dan Norton's great kick game might've, he might've done that and chase. And so we went with Sammy very, very, and they all understood it. I can, I, I told them why. And, and so they were totally connected and none of them were, um, misaligned at, at, at that moment. Um, so, so it was a straightforward tournament in, in, in many ways, really, just with that slight kink in the performance in the quarterfinals in New Zealand, where we were five, I think five points up with 30 seconds to go. We had a penalty and we could have just killed the game there and then, but we, we you know, in Fijian fashion, we didn't do that. We tapped and went and got turned over and then, relied on um a turnover ourselves to um to 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 put a put a full stop on on that game and and get through into the semi-finals but that that moment aside there weren't any any touch points that you felt too stressed and did your fijian son just take over did it just become osaya's was it just his show when you got to rio yeah, I, I, he definitely, he, yeah, he, he he was very good at that. And so was Rapati, really, you know, that 
it's strong leadership. But I'll say it, you know, Lee's by example, you know, he, he um, you know, he's the best captain by a country mile I've, I've worked with because of his off as well as on field. And he's got very good empathy with everybody and he's very consistent in his behavior and he's honest. Um, so, you know, we had, we have an, a, a great relationship and yeah, he, he certainly led the way. Um, and he was our flag bearer in the opening ceremony as well, you know, and Serena Williams wanted a selfie with him because he was in his, um, his tribal wear and his oiled chest and all of that sort of stuff. Um, so he found that a lot of fun. And he also became pretty pally with Wade Van Niekerk, who's the South yeah. African 400 meter world record holder who would come to some of our lottos as well. So, um, yeah, he, he was, um, he, he was a t- talismanic man in Rio. The there's there's other Fijian moments that I don't think I'm ever going to experience. Uh, I had the the time in this ceremony where we were drinking kava and I was we clap and we did all and it was it was beautiful and I fi- I was pinching myself thinking I can't believe I'm, I'm here. But the moments of singing a hymn or the prayer or those intimate times that sometimes slip out onto social media but you must have seen so many of those and been part of so many of those that that are not shared to everyone Mm. i mean that's that's a different culture altogether and you you work with businesses and sport and with people on culture and environment you can't replicate that anywhere can you that's a great question because i can't quite see it but um I've got Owen Eastwood's book that he's just uh, released. Who's a fantastic uh, performance consultant. And um, he's written a book around performance that's centered really around the Maori um, traditions. Um, and you're right. Like you, some of the stuff that people will see, which is, you know, the carver ceremonies and the singing after games and, and, and that stuff does creep into social media, but there, there is lots of other things that, that um, haven't have been private and, um, uh, you know, also the stuff that you don't even hear about, I don't even hear about. And then it, then you suddenly hear a story about something that they've done or, and um, it, rem- it reminds you of the strength of the culture and the power of it. And that, you know, and that I've felt so strongly about it that it's can't quite see it, but, you know, I've got my tattoo here. Um, that's Mani, which means love each other and work together. And it's an old Fijian phrase and it's centered, you know, our culture centered around that, you know, work for those next to you, you know, because they'll be working for you as well. And it was, it was that meant that sense of, um, of feeling that would, that would help us as a team because that's the village way as well. Um, so yeah, there definitely could be, um, a leadership or performance book centered around, um, the things that you do in Pacific Island culture for sure. So without undermining it, it's it's quite simple. But we in in this country and in professional sport, things are bloody complicated, aren't they? Bruce, it is simple. And I think sometimes simple isn't easy to get to. Um, and, and that's because there's so much noise sometimes in some of these high-end organizations, you know, with the amount of software and analysis and auxiliary staff. Um that you get lost in some of the the core fundamentals, you know, and, and, and weirdly, actually, I think there's actually going to be room and we'll start to see, see some roles emerging around culture, because if you're, you know, a head coach now and in, in, 
a top team in a top sport, your day is spent a lot around the media and commercial side of it and and all the other parts of that management around the organization. And then, you know, you need to make sure that you get your training sorted. Those small conversations that every coach would, would every good coach would tell you that, you know, they wish they could have every day with every player in the, on their staff time, you know, you run out of time sometimes and actually having somebody that that's working alongside that coach, that's making sure that those things are happening as well. And that information's coming and those conversations, those relationships are, uh, are still working, I think is really important. And, um, uh, and so that is a simple thing, for example, but it's not done. It's, you know, it, it can get lost in, in, in modern professional sport if you're not careful. And when you're now working with business or professional sports teams, when you go in, can you see things straight away? Yeah. Can you see wins that can happen very quickly? Because from the talk of Fiji, you benefited from early success, which then meant people were going to buy into this guy. Yeah. Can you see things very quickly and then are businesses happy with a quick win and then send you on the way? Or do they want a lasting relationship? So, sometimes it, it might be like, a, it might literally be, you know, you, you dropped in, you've done a quick MOT and you spotted a few things that gives them a, a a, a big change you know especially with if there's companies just merged or really going going a slightly different way um in their in their business plan or with a sports team they're just their culture so you know when i've gone into some of the sports teams almost instantly i can see i can see things and i think that's based around experience it's also where i put my focus that i believe that you know if you don't get your culture right and by culture i mean creating an environment where everybody can be at their best and they all clearly understand what their guardrails are as well um if you don't get that right then when the real pressure comes on it's gonna falter and so yeah i would say i could go in i do go into the different places almost immediately i can spot a few things and and then that's a case of keep quiet don't suddenly jump to conclusions because you know there might be more to it than than I'm seeing. And that's when that understanding gets to that deeper level to really understand what's what what's really going on in the DNA of somewhere, you know. Um, you could immediately say, I've been in places where they've talked about culture and they've written down all their all their various things on the walls and you've gone into their changing rooms and, and it's an absolute mess. Now it might be that they've got a disconnect. But it might also there might be something some other reason why on that day that you've walked into that changing room it's messy it's messy, um, and so I think you have to be careful about that. But I would say yeah, I, I, I'm it's a it's a probably a strength of me that I can see whether it's good or bad, and even just simple things like um, I remember I remember going to Glasgow a couple of years ago. Um, and going into the to the training ground and the first four players I met all came and shook my hand, said hello. Uh, and I've been into clubs where that doesn't happen, where they just don't know you. And I've been then onto a higher level where a club has been prepped about your arrival and players will take <laughs> your hand and they'll ask you stuff, you know. Um, and, and you immediately feel welcomed and you feel valued. And like, I might only be in there for a couple of hours, perhaps, but that makes a big difference, you know, and, and that does give you a clue to, okay, this is where the culture is leaning towards. <laughs> Have you ever been in anywhere where you thought you're beyond help? 
um, <laughs> I've been into, yeah, I've been, I've been into, um, into a, uh, yeah, a, a very big franchise in the U S where I thought this is going to take a couple of years to turn around. This is not, this is, this is deep. It's not, it's not something on the surface. It's going to require a big change around in staff in culture in in a lot of different things. And I didn't, that didn't, didn't take long to look at and see. Um, and I think other times there's just, you know, there might, there, again, I remember going into one Olympic sport where I wasn't really getting, everyone wasn't saying hello. And um, I was, I, I was thinking, you know, that I wasn't particularly wanted there. And it was only because it was a new venue for them as well. It was a new training base for them. And they just, they themselves felt a little bit like, Oh, what's this, what's this place? What, you know, where's my place in this? Where do I stand now? That place I always used to go to, to get changed in and to train in. It's not there anymore. So, you know, for the, it was obvious. It wasn't anything to do with me or the, or the culture. It was just a new environment. Um, and so it's silly little things like that that sometimes pop up. You know, I've been in a few clubs where they've moved training grounds to new shiny training grounds. And the ones that are really aware have always already worked out that the new training ground might not give them as much interaction with the rest of the club, you know, that their academy might be on the other side of the, the building and the, the women's part of the, of the club or the community. And so how can you overcome that in new surroundings? And so, you know, great coach. I remember having a really good, conversation with brendan rogers about that at leicester city you know he was so aware of it they were moving from their old to their new um that they were making sure that when they did move in that everything was in place to overcome the obstacles he'd already seen and they hadn't those obstacles hadn't even appeared yet but he was forward thinking enough to realize that that was coming around the corner and i thought well that's immediately that short conversation then you also know that he is going to play the long game as far as creating the right culture. And I, I saw that in lockdown when he when he dropped a couple of players that had broken COVID, you know, two important players that he really needed or might be more, played the long game. And, you know, that they went on to, to have, you know, a lot of success this season. He's, he's a smart operator. I heard Michael Neal on a podcast and he was talking about through his football managerial career, he'd never had a training base until... I can't remember who it was he was with, but with Northern Ireland, he said it was impossible. We never had a home. Out of that adversity, is that where you can often find success? It doesn't have to be bright and shiny and, and steeped in sports science? 100%. Um, and I think, yeah, you would definitely, if that was, yeah, if that, that, that example about Northern Ireland, you turn it into a strength, don't you? That, that, that adversity binds you, that you talk about it, you connect some of your some some of the goals that you want as a collective and perhaps you know some of the values that you have as as that team as well and you turn it into something really powerful so i'm a big believer you know and again this is a well-worn phrase by me but i've never been to a a, a team where they've I've, they failed because someone's not turned on a gps unit before they run on the field but i have been to plenty and been in many where you know that they, they fail because coaches have a broken relationship with one of their players or two players aren't getting on or whatever. And, and it all comes down to relationships in, in my opinion. And then making sure that you're all, you know, you, you, you're on top of it all the time and you're consistent. So you, you put it at the front, you consistent in it. You, you can somehow measure it in different ways. Um, and then, you know, you, you, 
you'll create an environment that I think will just give you that value added that other environments won't have. And and you did that with Fiji Sevens to win a gold medal. Um, those players standing on the podium and then taking, you know, kneeling down. When you're standing watching that, I'm not going to ask what you were thinking at the time because uh, it's like Mo Farah in the home straight. Oh, I was thinking about my family. No, you weren't. You weren't thinking anything. You were in the moment. But when you reflect back, what do you think was going through your head and your heart as you saw that moment unravel? Were you sad that it was over? Were you delighted that it had been achieved? Um, what was going through you? Once the once the final whistle goes, um, it it's all kind of over, really, in many ways. And and with thirty seconds to go, and we were forty three points to seven up, so the game was won. The, the, the I think the whistle went, and one of our replacements, Apaside Domalai, had it, and we were kind of just on the edge of the British twenty two. And I, in my head, I was like, "Play, play, and let's score another try because you know we're in the Olympic final here. Got to enjoy this." And he he kicked it out. And there was a moment of me that was pretty frustrated, you know, that was like, I wanted to get 50 points here. Not, not because of the scoreline necessarily, but because like, well, I want someone else to have the ball in an Olympic final. And, you know, he, they could have passed it to someone else to someone else and we could have scored another, another try or done something. Um, and so that, so then the, then the whistle finished and then, you know, you get to hug everyone and, and, and that bit's cool and being able to tell them they're Olympic champions, the rest of it, um, I, I, I honestly, I'd be lying if I was telling you what my thoughts are um, when I was when I was watching them. You know, you, you do think about what's next. You do think about some people that are central in your life. You know, so for me, it was you know, my dad would have popped up in my thoughts quite a lot in that in that build up or around it. I couldn't tell you specifically when, but he he would have it would have been a thought that you know I would have loved him to have you know known about my coaching career or even my, you know, some of my playing career, because he, he died when I was pretty young. So, so th those things, I guess, but um, yeah, it is, it, it is all about the, the journey. It's about that going into it and everything else. And once that's gone, it, everything else is a slightly downhill. Yeah, I've heard Johnny Wilkinson say he would give anything not for the final whistle and the celebrations, but for the last 30 seconds of the game. He'd give mm. anything to be in that moment again. And it did you just not want it to end? Were you just enjoying the ride so much? Yeah, didn't didn't want it to end. Didn't want it to end. Um yeah, wasn't wasn't one of those games where you're looking at the the the, the clock and thinking, yeah, we're closer, we're closer, we're closer. Um you wanted to, yeah, you wanted to live in that moment for as long as possible, really. And so, yeah, I, I can understand why, you know, obviously, John, why Johnny said that. I, I it, it resonates, I think, and it probably would have resonated if you spoke to quite a few of the boys. Um, you know, for some of them, it springboarded them into um, economic safety, financial safety, going to big clubs and starting a new chapter. For others, um, it was, it was, you know, is their is their height and is what they're going to be known for. And I think you know they would say as well. It would have been those moments before the game and and playing in the game, not the moments afterwards. And do they still phone and say, "Coach, I've got an offer here. What do you think?" Or, yeah. "I've just had a son," or and I've called them. Bit like what? 
what what's the contact now is it still quite frequent it's not as frequent as it was for sure like straight after for the next couple of years you know it was it was pretty frequent and everyone's splattered all over the place now so that makes it difficult so you know i i guess like if i'm thinking about it i spoke to rapati the manager yesterday i spoke to him twice in the last week um on zoom i speaking to Osean next week um just for a chat and then also he's coming on the podcast to talk about our relationship um, oh, which, wow. will be, which will be fun that'll be spectacular um, yeah i'm looking forward to that um and he's out in california you know and and playing out there and working out there and and, and the others are all over the place and they're living their own lives really so you know i'm, I'm all we're all, all there for each other if we ever need and anything happens but um uh it's definitely become less frequent yeah so forget the friends reunion how do we get the Fiji gold medal reunion? What what could happen there? And by the way, James Corden's not hosting it. I'm in for that one. <laughs> I think it's slightly less uh, less high profile. Um, I don't know. We talked about having one like last year, but again, just the the, the sheer logistics. So perhaps when we get to ten years down the track, um, there certainly might be some more uh, desire to try to make it work. But you know, we see each other in clumps. You know, so. Um, there were a few of the boys that played in Rugby X that I got them to yeah. play for the Barbarians. So we grabbed a few of them. Unfortunately, with their visas and everything else, it meant they couldn't get on the plane they were supposed to get on two days earlier. So they literally flew the night before, played in the O2 the following day, and then had to leave like the following morning. So they had like no time at all, 40 hour hours in London, which was a real shame because I was hoping to have a bit more time to hang out and show them around London properly. But um, yeah, we'll get opportunities like that in the future as well. So um, I'm conscious of time, although I could keep you here forever. What does the future hold for Ben Ryan? I think if you'd asked me that question before COVID, I would have just given you the answer that I'm enjoying all the different things I'm doing. Um, it gives me nice variation. And 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 in COVID, with lockdown, um, it's just given you a bit of time to to think and to read and to to discuss things with so Michelle, my partner and chat about both of what we want out of our careers. And, um, and I want to get stuck into something chunky again. I want, I want to be more kind of closer to, to the shop floor, I suppose, rather than be more consultant and strategic. So I hope, um, I kind of always figure that I'm prepared opportunity will appear. Um, and, and hopefully that, that will happen in the future. It needs to be kind of UK Europe really, um, and I, I've, I've got a sneaking feeling. I think it will be in another sport. I don't think it will be in, in rugby. We'll see. But um, uh, yeah, I kind of just, I'm just reasonably chilled about it thinking, you know, just be ready for that chunky opportunity when it appears. <laughs> chunky opportunity. I love it. <laughs> uh, I just, um, I'm so delighted that you agreed to come on, Ben. Thank you so much. We've not even touched on, rugby x we've not got to so many other things you do but i really do appreciate your your time and your insight i've absolutely loved speaking to you um at the end of the pods i ask people to finish a sentence for me and i'm i'm really intrigued to hear what this is going to be so ben ryan for you happiness is i think we've got to stick with the fijian theme for this one so it would be having a boo so that's a, a you know a, a young coconut a green coconut after training uh, underneath a coconut tree with with the Fijian Sevens team um, after a hard session. 
um, yeah, the, that would probably be it. I've, I can all, I can smell the coconut. I can smell the sweat from their shirt. <laughs> I can smell the salty sea breeze wafting in from from the sea and um, and the chatter in the background and stuff. Uh, you know, because we ran short of those booze when I was at um, in Fiji preparing for the Olympics. Because and we'd get locals to come and give a boo to their favorite player and then have a little chat with them after training. And it was brilliant. Um, and those moments where you're sitting around the, on the pitch when some of the finest sevens players in the world are there with locals that have given them a coconut and they're just chatting and laughing, it is pretty unique and it, it does make me smile. Yeah, it, it makes me smile too. I absolutely love it. Um, I've just blown away and I can't wait to go to Fiji to see my mate Rupeni who promises he's going to take me to the village and he's going to introduce me to his mum that I've never met and Amazing. he's going to take me to watch some sevens so it's yeah. it's definitely on the cards and having spoken to you it's it's gone even further up the, up the chain Ben thank you so much I really appreciate it. and uh, all the best with your podcast and whatever the future holds and uh, if you're looking for it being a Brentford fan Hibs could probably do with some of your help so I'm a Hibs <laughs> fan so Easter Road would welcome you I'm sure well who knows you know but um yeah that that put a smile on my face this weekend I was close to saying watching Brentford get promoted but um yeah <laughs> the, the future's bright at Brentford that's it brilliant thank you Ben Great. Top stuff. Cheers, Bruce. All the best. Thank See you. you, mate. Bye. Well, that, ladies and gentlemen, was Ben Ryan, Olympic gold medal winner. And that wasn't what was important. What was important was the journey and being with people, making memories. And he speaks so fondly. That took a long time. I, I hope you enjoyed it. I absolutely loved it. And I would love to do it all again. What an absolute legend. If you enjoyed it, Please get on to Acast, Spotify or Apple for the pods. You can watch us on Facebook and on YouTube. Please subscribe, leave us a review if you enjoyed and give us some suggestions on who you think's up next. We have got some absolute crackers and Ben Ryan has been a massive highlight for me, a huge, huge hero of mine. When this pod started, really, it was just an excuse for me to speak to people that I absolutely love. And today, a dream came true by getting to chat to Ben Ryan. My name is Bruce Aitchison, and my happiness is egg-shaped. All the best, and I'll speak to you again very, very soon. Hello, I'm Mayhem. Hello, I'm Chaos. And, and our happiness is egg-shaped. Happiness is egg-shaped. Love's a circle with no end. <laughs> happiness is egg shaped. Hey, um, happiness is egg shaped. Happiness is egg shaped and loves a circle with no end. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.